My name's uh, Jessica Knapp, and really a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from a book I read a long time ago called A Framework for Understanding Poverty. And um, this is uh, Ruby Payne's kind of publication of her dissertation work. I will tell you that she's considered controversial in education circles because of some of what I'm going to talk about today, because she really did sit down and say, look, when we're dealing with students in generational poverty, they have these characteristics. And as you might imagine, that can upset some people in educational circles because that is, you know, putting everybody in the same category. It's stereotyping. It's not nice. You can find lots of negative comments about Ruby. But I will say this, um, I've been working with at-risk students either in youth ministry or campus ministry for, oh, if I say it out loud, it'll make me sound old, but almost 20 years now, um, 17, 18, no, really 20. Um, and a lot of what she has to say is huge. So I, I started out reading this book um, actually as part of my dissertation in education and I was volunteering as a youth minister to all these at-risk kids and I'm reading this for my dissertation going, whoa, whoa, <laughs> I got to change the way I'm thinking about what I'm doing with my own students in my youth ministry. And then I read she has a second book called Bridges Out of Poverty and she actually has created an entire curriculum. So those of you that are working with the homeless or, or thinking about what it might look like, um, please check out her material because it's well-researched, it's well-documented, she's a lot to say. And what I'm going to kind of go over today is just sort of like some bare bones because I cannot cover her 20 years of research and writing um, in a 45-minute class. I will say that the purpose of today's um, session is to encourage your congregation to rethink what your benevolence um, outreach programs look like. And um, we're going to pull from research and we're going to explore how to help people bridge out of generational poverty. And um, our goal will be that you walk away with something concrete, that you can go back to your congregations and be like, okay, let's do this or let's try this or let's pick up this book, but that you have something that you walk away with, not that you like went to a great talk and then have to ruminate about it for, you know, ages before you pick something up. Um, you know, typically, let me come back here. I think typically most of us um, provide food, provide clothing, maybe we pay some bills, we offer some resources, but that's kind of the extent of a lot of churches' outreach programs. And none of those things are bad. It, it's always good to be able to hand somebody a food box and be like, here's food. But you know, one of the things I encountered is we pass out all these food boxes, but I had, I had families that didn't have electricity and didn't actually have a way to cook. So you hand them um, spaghetti and guess what? <laughs> they eat it raw because what are they going to do with it? Um, so you, thinking about what resources we provide and what we offer in those food boxes, um, what clothes? You know, we had a, an, a, it was called Annie's Attic. It was like just a donation center at our congregation when I first started doing this. And anybody who had leftover clothes or old clothes or whatever would donate them. But I would start looking for, I had a student or a parent who needed to, to try and get a job and we'd go to Annie's attic and I'd look at it and be like, this stuff is all 30 years old, it has holes in it, it smells, it's got cat hair on it or something. I can't send somebody to a job interview in these things. We have to rethink even some of the basic stuff. But that's not what I really want you to do. What I really want you to do 
is think on a broader point of view. So um, what are norms? A norm is like a rule of thumb. It's like a set of expectations. It's a hidden rule. We don't usually talk about it, but you guys all followed some norms when you came in. Roger came and sat in the center. It's a norm that was taught to him, and he was told explicitly that that's the way the good church people behave so that visitors can sit on the outside, right? But in a classroom, we have some norms and expectations. We put our notebooks out. We know where to put our water bottle. You, you have some idea about how to interact. And you were taught those things maybe because you went to school or maybe because your parents brought you somewhere. If we all go to church, we know that at church there's some rules that we know how to follow. We know where to sit. We know that you know during communion, depending on your church, you've got to be quiet. You know, and you're taught that from the time you're like knee-high to a grasshopper. Shh, mommy's taking communion. Well, we have norms that fit our social situation and our cultural situation. And I think the thing that Ruby Payne is most groundbreaking is that she, she points out with good research that the social cultural norms that I was raised in in a middle-class family are different than the sociocultural norms that my friends have been raised in in generational poverty. And let me take a moment here and just talk about what I mean by generational poverty. Situational poverty is something when dad loses his job, but the family has other resources. They're educated, they have love, they have um, maybe friends and family, a support system. And so, yes, they're poor, but they have enough resources to get out. Generational poverty is when three or more subsequent generations do not have sufficient resources. And I'm gonna define the resources because resources aren't just money, which is why we can't just add money to fix it because that's not the only resource that's missing. So money, food, clothes, those are important. But if you want to help somebody bridge out of poverty, you actually have to provide them the hidden rules, the sociocultural norms to know how to behave in situations that they haven't been taught to behave in. Um, so, I'm sorry, time. Yeah, I can talk about it. Um, I have kind of a fun story. I was a student here at Pepperdine, and, and you may or may not notice, but if you wander around Pepperdine, you'll find out about 80% of Pepperdine students spend at least one semester overseas when they're a student. And so it is not uncommon for us to sit in the cafeteria, especially towards the end of the semester when the overseas students are coming back, and laugh and chat and talk. And, and these stories come in about, oh my goodness, I was on this train, we were on our way to Paris, and this thing happened, or you wouldn't believe it, we slept in the train station in Munich, it was so much fun, or I had my passport stolen in Venice. You know, like, th those conversations happen all the time for students at Pepperdine. It is part of our sociocultural norms to be able to talk about international travel. And it is, it is part of our conversation and dialogue in our classroom, on our campus, in our church settings, for us to think about these things from a very broad international point of view because our friends are in Shanghai or Buenos Aires or Luzon or Florence or we're getting ready to go to Heidelberg or we spent a semester in Heidelberg and while we were there, we went to Prague, and we went to here, and we went to there, and, and so that's part of our norms. Well, I, 
had a good friend and he came with me to lectures and he came and sat down at the table and he did he went to that other school they're the eagles um and and we're sitting around the table and just totally chatted up and talking about all of our time you know and reminiscing traveling all over europe by train and we walked away and he goes i don't know what kind of christian school this is but that was super uncomfortable why, man? We were just totally talking about our experiences in college. He said, because I've never been out of the country, and I never heard people talk like that. And, 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 and to be fair, there was a student who had just come back from Florence, and I was like, did you go to Red Door? Did you get to Pizza Sparrow? Oh my goodness, you remember that time? And, and I didn't realize that sitting in my culture, here at my campus, where it's normal to have conversations about where you get pizza in Florence, that my friend was incredibly uncomfortable. And I would posit to you that when we're working with people of different social status, that they live in that uncomfortableness all the time. But we would be really uncomfortable if we went and hung out with them. Because my first experiences, my next slide. Okay, my first experiences with this was helping a, a little girl named Krista, and she asked me to come, take her to shop with a cop. You know, no shop with a cop. It's a great program. Um, you get to go shopping with a police officer. It's usually right around Christmas time. You're supposed to get a backpack of school supplies. You're supposed to get a jacket and a new outfit. But my kid didn't want to buy any of that stuff. She was getting a gift for her landlord, and she wanted to buy a present for the minister at our church. She got all of her little sisters something, and finally we had to stop her and say, the rules say you have to get a backpack. She goes, I don't need a backpack. I got that from the school. And we said, well, okay, but you have to get a jacket. No, I already got a jacket because they handed them out, you know, at this program or that program. Well, you have to get, and finally I was like, okay, <laughs> I don't have the skills. Like here I am, right, in that uncomfortable situation. I'm trying to follow the rules. The rules say poor people need a jacket, a backpack, school supplies, and a new outfit. And my kid was like, I'm at the Kmart with an unlimited basket. I want to buy presents for everyone. <laughs> and that was my first like out-of-body experience. Like I don't know how to help this kid in a way that makes sense. So, I have a little quiz for you. Um, raise your hand if you know the best church for free clothing in your area. The best church for free clothing. There's always a church that gives out free clothing and you know some of them have the better ones. Or there's always a program that gives out uh, clothes for, for interviews or work clothes. If you know the right one in your area, raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand if you know how to navigate an airport. <laughs> Lots of us have flown before, right? Raise your hand if you know how to navigate an application for food stamps or which church has the best food boxes and what day they hand them out. Maybe the application for food stamps. It, it's a pain, right? <laughs> And you have to have internet access, which I always think is funny. Um, how many of you have a passport? Um, how many of you know how to reserve a private plane? 
<laughs> no clue. How many of you know how to open a bank account? See, each of these things are norms in different social statuses. I have no idea how to buy art at an auction. Because honestly, I think it all is, you know, the eye of the beholder or something. <laughs> but I definitely know people who have bought art at an auction. I'm like, okay, right? I don't know how to get some sort of private plane. Um, but I know people and they know that it's possible. If they need to go somewhere. They call up a pilot. Pilot meets them down at the special site of the airport I didn't know existed, and they take their plane to wherever they need to go, and there's a route, and there's a schedule, and there's a, didn't know, right? But you ask me, can I buy an airplane ticket? Yeah. Can I rent a car? Yeah. Can I go wherever I need to go? Can I work in a situation? Do I know how to go to job interview? Do I know what clothes to wear? Do I know if I walk into court, what language is appropriate for court? Here's one. Can I tell a story from the beginning? to the end with the middle. I have problems with that one. Um, but that's, that's a traditional middle class norm, is that you start from here, you go to there, right? So then I started working with at-risk kids, and I learned all sorts of things. I learned which thrift shop to go to on what day. And I learned who has the best food boxes, whether you have a microwave, or you have electricity, or you don't have one at all. And I learned where can I get free clothes on Sundays, the first Sunday of the month, or where can I get, and where can I get free pet food? How can I get my pets vaccinated for free? What if I need to see a doctor? No such thing as a primary care physician in this world, right? What if I'm having a mental health crisis? Who do I call? Or I'm not going to call somebody for me, right? But who? Who's, who am I going to call when my neighbor, my friend? Okay, what if somebody's high? How do I get them help? It's not 911. Because the social norms are different in this situation. We don't call the cops. We don't. Because they might make more trouble. They are the last resort. And that's not saying anything against the police department in any city. It is just the social norm for this culture. So here are some of the hidden class rules that Ruby um, Payne kind of defines. And I really wanted to point out, like she looks at driving forces. And this is going to be key. The driving force for most of us is achievement. Did you go to college? Did you get a degree? What kind of job do you have? You have goals, you achieve them. And that is normal. That is a norm in our culture. Okay? Um, that is not the case when we're working with our friends. Their decision making is about what do I do to make it through today? What do I have to have between today and tomorrow? And if I run across, a, I, have, I had this happen. If I run across a $100 bill, I'm thinking, dude, you've got $100. Put that in a savings account and we can use it. You'll have food for like three weeks. My kid goes, I got $100. Let's go spend it now. Now, 
you and I are thinking, what a terrible financial decision. How dare you spend that money? God was providing for you, right? That's our, that's our view because we live in the middle class social norms. But their view is, I have $100 and there's a lot of people that have taken care of me over the last, I don't know how many months that I've been homeless and I owe them to take care of them in this moment so that when I need something later, I have a place. They're not making a bad financial decision. They're making a decision that's driven by different decision makers than what our achievement view is made. And I think this is kind of the biggest hurdle um, as we think about how to do our outreach programs is to shift our mode of thinking because so often we kind of think, well, if they just get a job, if they just make wiser financial decisions, then they could be middle class like us. But I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a parent or a kid a job. They can't keep them. And it's not always their fault. They just don't have the social norms to know how to behave in the situation. And so when something goes wrong, they don't have the skills to navigate the problem. So they also have, they struggle because we've set up some catch 22s. Nope, hold on. Yeah, we'll talk about resources first. Okay, so I said earlier that it's not just about money, right? It's not just about having a job. It's not just about getting a paycheck. It's not just about having enough money because when you lack resources, you probably lack resources in many of these areas, okay? It's about money, but it's also about language. If I walk into court, I know how to use a formal register. I don't sit and go like, you know, hey man, like dude, that was so cool. Now I could sit in a, in a classroom with, with a youth group and say those words and everybody in the youth group would be like, awesome. But if I'm in court, I know how to use the appropriate language. That's a social norm that's been taught to me because my parents over here, you know, made sure I learned these things, right? Um, choosing how to behave when you are affected by negative emotions. Whew. Without engaging in self-destructive behavior. That is a norm, it's learned. And if you've lived in a different culture, you might have learned a different way to manage your emotions. And if you're behaving in a situation like at work and a negative situation comes up, the only skills you have are what you've been taught. And you may get yourself fired because you don't have the right skills to survive that situation. Mental health is huge and having the mental skills, reading, writing, computing, that's big. I think we're coming a long way on that. A lot of the students that I have, they're at-risk students, have some skills. They're managing to get through school. But I will say this, when I sit down and talk to them, their reading comprehension is miles behind their reading comprehension of, of kids their same age coming from a different background. And they're processing, what do I do with this information and how do I think about it, is in a different place. Um, I'll leave this up for just a second, but I, I think it's important to recognize 
that all of these things are resources. And so when we're thinking about our outreach programs, if we're only addressing the financial resource, we can't help bridge out of poverty when we don't manage the rest of the resources. Okay, so now I think is my cog slide. Oh, this is way, or I turned off my clicker. I'll come back to that, okay. So <laughs> let me offer you some situations. I have a student that says, I need a job. Great, I love that you've come to the place where you understand that, let me help you. Okay, let's get a, re a resume together, perfect. Oh, I got an interview, but I have to bring an ID and I don't have an ID. <sighs> you don't have any ID? Well, no, okay. So how do we get an ID? Well, in order to get an ID, to go down to this, any state DMV, you need a social security card and a birth certificate. How do I get a social security card or a birth certificate? I have to have an ID. What do I do? I have no way out. Now I will tell you that depending on the state, there are some ways out. And especially if you have a church secretary that's a notary and you trust this kid that they are who they say they are. Maybe they have a school ID or you have their school records then use their school ID and notarize the request for a birth certificate and send it in through the mail. It's the only way. But helping them get a birth certificate is vital. And if they, I've worked with kids that have come out of the foster care system or they've come out of jail or maybe mom and dad are dead or mom and dad are on the streets because they're drug addicts, guess what? They don't have birth certificates. They know their social security number because it's required to get school lunch, it's required to get uh, food stamps and things like that, but they have, they have no idea where the card is. And especially during the pandemic, things became incredibly difficult because if you didn't have that card, you couldn't just go into an office and ask for it. All those offices were closed. And, and so it's not simply, well then just go apply for a job. There's, and it takes months, by the way, by the time you apply, even if you can get a notary who will sign that says who you are and you get the $20, $30, $40 to apply for the birth certificate, it takes six weeks to get to the birth certificate. Then you have to go in and make an appointment at the social security office. You show the birth certificate, your social security card, then you take those two things, you make an appointment again to get to the DMV to get a state ID, which also costs money. And now you're 12 weeks in, where have you been living during this time or how have you been eating during this time? and the job you were applying for is long gone. And that's the system, it's the cogs, it's impossible to navigate without help. Um, there's other things we could talk about. What about I get a job but I don't have any housing? You know when you apply for a job you have to have an address and a phone number? Well how do you pay for an address and a phone number if you don't have a job? Or I need clean clothes, you cannot go to work smelling or in dirty clothes. You get a write-up the first day and you'll be fired the second. You gotta have a shower, you gotta have clean clothes. Those are things that are required in order to keep your job. How about if I'm trying to get a car? And I don't mean like, you know, buy a car. I mean, I just need to rent a car to drive to an interview. Well, to rent a car, you have to have an ID, you have to have a credit card, which means you gotta have a bank account because you gotta have some credit, okay? How do I get a bank account? They have no idea. Um, even if we scrape together $50, 
you have to have an ID and a social security card to go into the bank to get, you see that it's all this vicious cycle and you have to have all your paperwork in order and you have to remember how to keep all your paperwork in order to manage to get out of the system. Okay, so let me go back now. So these are mental models developed by uh, Ruby Payne and her associates and they kind of talk about what sort of things sit in your brain? What are you working for? What are your driving forces? Okay, and, and the key pieces here is to think about the three kind of words in the center. And if you wanna like go deeply into this, I would say go read her books. She actually has a whole series of um, uh, uh, workshops that you can get certified in, in her Bridges Out of Poverty stuff. So, so don't just take this and, but in poverty, I care about relationships. Everything I do is about taking care of relationships, which means if I'm a kid, I don't care if my mom is the worst mom on earth. She's a drug addict, a deadbeat, she beat me. I don't care, she's my mom. I will do anything for her. There's nothing you can do to sever that relationship. I will die defending her. But she beat you, but she's not taking, no, nope, that's my mom because that relationship is central to the way I behave. And I will give up everything to the point of going back to being homeless to take care of the relationships that are valuable. And, and we sit and go, what did you just do? We spent six months getting you to this point. Why are you going back? Because of the relationships, okay? And if you think about it, what did I just say? What was key? What you have achieved in the last six months is more important than the relationship. I'm living in the wrong social cultural, in the wrong model, right? The, the wrong mental model. My social cultural norms are based on achievement. If I was super, super, super rich, then, well, there's a lot of things, right? But then I would care about connections. Who can I connect you with? Let me make this work out for you. Here, let's go to lunch and have something here. Oh. I'm not going to care as much about how much is achieved or how much is earned or how much is gained because that's not the goal. The goal is who can I connect you with? What table can we sit at? Who are we talking to? Now, I would say if we're going to be good bridges, we actually have to understand all three of these circles. Because in order for me to be able to afford to do what I do, I have to make connections. I still have to put food on the table. There has to be some money that comes in. And the way that that happens is I connect to the right people. I have to live in that world, that fundraising world, right? But in order for me to really reach people and make a difference, I have to understand why they make the decisions that they make. Why would you choose to go to jail? A lot of people choose to go to jail. Jail is horrible. It is terrible. I mean, I had a kid in there. I went to visit. Her bunk mate had been tossed from a bunk. Her um, collarbone had been broken. They had had no um, air conditioning for like three days and they were on restriction, which meant they couldn't leave their rooms and their rooms were not air conditioned. It was miserable and she would pick going there than going somewhere else. 
I had a really hard time wrapping my brain around that because I didn't understand this circle very well. So I guess the key thing I want us to think about as we move to like, what do we do now? Is part of our goal is as a bridge is to have our foot on both sides. A good bridge is stable here and stable here. That means I understand the norms, the decision-making process. I can talk the talk and use the vernacular of my friends that are in generational poverty. And I'm very careful about saying in that way, my friends, because the reality is this bridge is straight across. It's not up. It's straight across. They know things I can learn from them. And oh man, they know some things. I have learned a ton of stuff from my kids. Sometimes I go, you can do that? <laughs> One of my kids taught me how to tie in to get the neighbor's electricity. I was like, don't touch that. And she goes, oh no, no, watch, watch. And I was like, oh, I mean, they know stuff. They're really capable. They know how to move into an empty trailer, set up house, get electricity without paying anything. It's impressive. It's scary. And it's different. So how do we be a bridge? The first thing is we start recognizing that it's not an even playing field, but I'm going to live on both sides and both sides are even. The second thing is we start to build relationships. Remember, relationships are central. And so no amount of pushing achievement is going to work if the relationship doesn't exist. Right? I can invite a billion people to Financial Peace University, which I don't like. We can talk about that another day. But um, it's not going to do a lick of anything for them because they need to be my friend. They need to walk next to me. We need to do life together. When I was doing youth ministry, I just started bringing the kids into my house and you know what, we did laundry together. Do you know how many kids I taught to iron? Sorry, mom. <laughs> I hated ironing. I don't even believe in ironing. I think ironing is horrible, but you know what? None of them even knew what an iron was. So we ironed things, right? We folded clothes. They'd never folded clothes before. You take the time to fold clothes at the laundromat, it's a waste. Because you're going to put those clothes in a bag and you're going to get on the bus and you're going to have to go like three doors down. And you get home, you're just going to leave it in the bag anyways. Or you're going to shove it in. Maybe you have a closet. Maybe you have a dresser. But dressers are super expensive. I don't know if you paid attention to that. Dressers are difficult to get. You can't get a dresser on Craigslist for free. They don't offer those. Dressers are a luxury. And so you put it in a basket or you put it on the floor. You put it at the end of your bed. But you don't fold your clothes. But if I wanted them to be able to go to college and go on and get a job, they needed to know how to do laundry. And they needed to know how to fold their clothes. They needed to know what a dresser was for and put the pants.
pants in a pants drawer and the shirts in a shirts drawer. And I mean, those are the kinds of skills that were like mind blowing to them. And that was the kind of stuff that was like normal to me. And so we had to do life together. We did laundry together. And then I would take them to the food bank. <laughs> My first time at Cup Truth to the food bank, I said, this is ridiculous. You have to give this much information every time you go to get a food box and then all they give you is this? What are you gonna do with this food? Oh, don't worry, we trade it between the neighbors. The ones that have electricity, we give them this stuff and, and then they give us these cans and, and then we're gonna go down to the Circle K and we're gonna use our food stamps at the Circle K to get hot Cheetos. And um, you, know, you know that's what it, because do you know how hard it is to get to a grocery store? You either have to take the bus and then you have to walk from the bus to wherever it is you're staying. Grocery stores are a luxury. They're middle class. And so you, you start by developing a relationship and understanding where people start. Now, I just gave you a whole bunch of examples. Not all those examples are the same situation, right? Some people have a car. That changes life. It changes life. It means you can go to the grocery store. It means you can spend your food stamps more wisely. But do you know how to cook? Have you had anything besides a microwave your whole life? Even if you had a stove, do you have any pots and pans? And would you know what to do with them? Nope, so you buy Hot Cheetos again, because I know a Hot Cheetos from the Circle K, so now I have a car and I can buy Hot Cheetos cheaper in a bigger package. So I cook with my kids. And we talk about how every meal should have a protein and a starch, because when you pair those two things together, you stay full longer and you don't get hungry. And then we should have fruits and vegetables. Man, fruits and vegetables are really expensive, guys. So we gotta get the canned ones, but boy, do they have a ton of sodium, which you wouldn't think makes a difference, but it does. It makes a difference. So the next thing I would say is get to know your local resources. See, there's other people building bridges, and they already have stuff. Don't reinvent the wheel. I, I have a list of places to get food boxes, and my congregation does not hand out food boxes. We're a small church plant. <laughs> I don't have time to put together food boxes or beg for anything to put in the food boxes, right? But I have a list. First Saturday, we go to Youth City. If we need to go during the week, I have like six churches. One on Tuesday, three on Wednesday. There's one on Thursday. There's two on Friday, and you can go to the local food bank once a month. And Interfaith Community Services, you can go twice a month. Okay, between that, I can get a kid a food box almost all the time. And if I really have to, there's a couple churches I can call them and be like, hey, I got a kid who's in need. And they say, oh, come on in. Ina Road does that for me, right? Yeah. Um, and so get to know who's got the food boxes. Find out who offers clothing. We have this mansion, the Z Mansion, on Sunday mornings on the first Sunday of every month. You can go down and get one outfit. You have to prove that you're on food stamps or that you're, you know, DES or whatever, which is our Department of Economic Security. But you can get one outfit every, every month. So find out those resources. Figure out which of your economic security offices, and I know every state has a different title, but economic security is where you have your um, Medicaid card, your free childcare, your low-income housing, your mental health, and your food stamps, right? And they're usually all housed in, in one building or a set of buildings, but the staff makes the difference and they make the call as to whether or not you get your services or not. It has nothing to do with numbers, which is wrong, by the way. There's so much we could say is wrong about the system. And if I wanted, I could do a whole lesson on things we should upend about what's wrong about the system. But I can't do that today. Today is really about what can we do. 
Yeah. And we, I, I don't know how to upend this system. I pay attention, I vote, but I'm working in the system we got. So figure out who has good staff. Who has less wait times? Do you know I've waited eight hours to do an interview with DES before? How are you supposed to keep a job and manage your kids and sit in an office for eight hours just to be told that you make $2 too much to get food stamps? <sighs> then why am I going back? I got to because you need the services. So part of my job is to know where to go. Um, know where you can go in person, which um, with COVID restrictions, this has been nightmarish. In Arizona, all of in Pima County, all of our offices closed. And some of them have not yet reopened, which sort of makes me angry because all of a sudden the only way to renew your food stamps, which have to be renewed every six months, was online. Their online system didn't work. And even if you did know your sign-in and your login, which most of my kids didn't, um, you couldn't get all the paperwork because you had to have a scanner and you had to fax. Or you could call, you start calling at 6 a.m., you call every few minutes until you finally get on hold and you sit on hold for three, four, five hours before you finally talk to somebody and then the call drops. <laughs> Your phones run out of battery or who knows what else. It is frustrating and it's helpful to have a friend who can say, oh, I've got a charger. Let's sit at my house where we have Wi-Fi. Let's sit at my house and we'll just put this on speaker and we'll do other things. You can study for your class, or I can help you with this, or we can fold clothes while we wait on hold. And wait, and wait, and wait, because guess what? When they answer the phone, you have to know the right language to advocate for yourself to get to the right person who can actually tell you how to send the right paperwork and not just send you back to the website to get the right thing done so that you can finally renew your food stamps. Knowing that language is here. And it's impossible to advocate for yourself and get to the right place without the right language. And so, so many people fall through the cracks because they don't have the resources to access the resources. Um, mental health. I would tell you that right now there is a growing mental health crisis in our country and it's getting worse. And it is across the board. But it is going to show up much more significantly in our families with generational poverty because they don't have the resources to manage. And so know what mental health resources are in your town and what they can get to if they're on Medicaid and who, who has openings. We have about five different agencies, and the different agencies have different levels of success. I actually hate them all, but um, I know that if somebody is of a particular mental health need and they need housing, Law Frontera is the better place because Law Frontera actually has housing that's part of their program. But if you switch over to Law Frontera, you lose a ton of stuff because if you're at COPE, 
Cope actually does a really good job with young adults. They have like a bowling night and they have um, uh, <laughs> street yoga during COVID. They had street yoga and things that help teach some of these sociocultural norms about how to behave in a yoga class or how to behave when you go out with friends bowling. And so know what's available because you're going to have to guide people to the right places and be prepared. I don't know what it's like uh, anywhere else, but I know that in Arizona, none of our mental health places have psychologists. Think about that for a second. Not a single one has a psychologist on staff. Not a one. Every single one is a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner in psychiatry. Every single appointment goes, let me do a psyche value and let me give you some medicine. <sighs> now, I'm not saying medication is a bad thing. For some people, it's really, really important. But do you know if you're living out of a tent how hard it is to keep track of your medicine? Do you know if you have them send the prescription over to Walmart, do you know how you know it's ready? Walmart will text you. I hope you have an Obama phone because it's the only way you're going to know how to get your medication or get your refill. But do you know it's going to get stolen anyways or lost? And how am I going to keep the right dosage? And some of those dosage instructions are like things like, oh, you need to take this with food, but you've got to take it three times a day. Well, how much do I take? Well, you have to read that and understand that. And sometimes my, my students get three bottles at a time and they all have different instructions about different amounts to take. And you know they throw those in the trash. And, and the mental health place says, well, come back. We're going to do a, a recheck to see if your meds are working. You come back in four to six weeks. So you go out and you go to make the appointment. And they say, our next available appointment is three months from now. And I say, oh, the, the nurse practitioner said we need to do a med check in four to six weeks to make sure that these are the right levels. Yeah, we don't have anything in four to six weeks. You can come in three months. But, but we'll be out of meds by then. That's what we have available. So how am I supposed to do a med check and make sure it's, it's, you're not? These are the places where it's super important to understand how to advocate. And medical advocacy is huge. It comes back to the language. Again, think about who are our nurse practitioners, who are our medical professionals. They are people that went to college and then went to graduate school. They live in a, in a middle-class conversation where people have calendars, where they make appointments, where they follow instructions, where they have a language to advocate for themselves, a, a, a register that, that, a language register that says, this is my need. No, that's not meeting my need. Let me explain it again. The number of kids I've seen dismissed. I had this kid who had chronic tonsillitis. We took her to every urgent care in town and they would say, oh, you have tonsillitis, go to your primary care physician. <sighs> she doesn't have a primary care physician. She's on access. Well, she really needs her tonsils out. Okay, good. Help me get her tonsils out. Well, you'll have to take her to the ER. Okay, we go to the ER. Yeah, you've got tonsillitis. You need to talk to a doctor and schedule to get your tonsils out. <sighs> so we would call a doctor and we would make an appointment. But by the time she could get the appointment, the tonsillitis had cleared up and they'd say, we don't see anything wrong with you. Yeah, but I've had tonsillitis like four times. Look at all the work I've missed because I've been so sick. Well, when, you know, when you have tonsillitis again, call us back. But they don't have same-day appointments, not if you're on Medicaid. And so learning how to advocate is huge. 
learn about what shelters, rehabs, halfway houses are available in your area. And honestly, the best thing you can do, go volunteer at some of them. Because they have nice, shiny things that they say on their websites. But if you go volunteer, you'll be like, oh, I'm not sending people to this place. Right? Or this is a good place. There's some in town that we, I would tell a kid, in fact, I told a kid this week, go to the Salvation Army, sit in the parking lot at 6 a.m. and you wait. And you wait and wait and wait. They're going to open their doors at 10. I don't care how long you have to wait. This is the place to get a bed. Because the Salvation Army has a good program. They have good caring people and they, they make it work. Right? And, and they will. And so get to know that I'm not saying that that's true of the Salvation Army at your area because it really depends on the people there and the way the programs run. And so please go find out your local resources. Volunteer there. We have this um, uh, place called The Haven. It's a rehab center. And um, I started just volunteering there. And I got to know the intake coordinators and I got to know the program. And I'll tell you, it makes a huge difference. And so now when I have somebody and I'm like, oh, you need rehab and I need somebody and I, have, I can make a phone call to somebody I know that I volunteered with, they know me, it makes all the difference. A couple of things I need to close, um, but a couple of things I think is so super important to understand. Survival mode only thinks short term. One of the things you have to talk about, it's one of these sort of resources pieces, is long term thinking. Why would I get a bank account? When I get my paycheck, I have to spend it on all my bills anyways. Well, because if you have a bank account, you can write checks. It doesn't cost money to pay your bills. Do you know if you don't have a bank account, you know how they pay you? They give you this ATM-like card thing, which, by the way, gets stolen all the time. And then anytime you need money off that card, you pay a fee for it. You have to pay a fee to get your paycheck because you don't have a bank account. Um, the Body Keeps the Score is a book. I highly recommend it, but um, if you are living in generational poverty, your body will not function in the same way that yours and mine does. And so be prepared that medical advocacy, like we just talked about, is super important, and medical professionals are going to dismiss things because you're going to show symptoms that just aren't going to make sense. Finally, our definition of success looks different. I once said to a friend of mine, I'd worked with a kid for years and years and years. I wanted her to go to college and she applied. She was there one semester and dropped out. And I thought, oh, I just, I failed this kid. And my friend grabbed me and said, she was born when her mom was 16 and she was born when her mom was 16 and she was born when her mom was 16. You have a 19 year old who's graduated from high school first in her, uh, in her family and went to college first in her family and isn't pregnant. That's success. And I was like, oh, that's so uncomfortable because I live in this achievement model in the middle, right? And I want them to achieve something different. And I, it was hard for me to see that that was achievement, that that was making it because guess what? She, she works as a realtor right now. She has a vernacular. She can live. She, ha she has a daughter um, and, and she knows how to enroll her kid in school. She knows how to make things happen. She's a success story even though the success looks different than what I define success as. So um, I think that's really all I have time for. Um, I hope that this was helpful.